0: Checking In, a podcast from Self Magazine. I'm Carolyn Kilstra, the Editor-in-Chief of Self, here to help you work through life's big and small questions about health and wellness. Today we're talking about grief and loneliness and how to feel like
1: yourself again after you've lost your person. Hi, uh, my name is Deanne Overvold. I'm from Huntington Beach, California, and I'm lonely. I was married for 30 years. I knew my husband for 33 years. The last four months of his life, he got leukemia and died. He's been gone six years now in August. It hasn't really gotten easier, which I was hoping it would. I'd try everything. And the first year I uh, signed up for college classes, Got rid of a lot of stuff in my house. I've tried a little bit of online dating. Oh, Lord. I don't really know where to go to meet anybody, Um, especially during the pandemic. That's a little difficult. As you get older, especially since I lost my job, that was my main outlet after my husband died. So some of those things that I thought were really important to move ahead kind of got hampered. I see a counselor. She says, I'm doing great. Maybe I am compared to others, so I don't know. I always tell people you miss touch the most, and touch isn't always physical. It's how you communicate it. It's knowing that they were in the room. So there's such a vast emptiness and void that you, you want to keep filling, you want to try to fill it, you keep working at it, it it's difficult.
0: When we were producing this episode, I kept going back and forth about whether this was a question about healing from grief or helping yourself feel less lonely. The truth is that it's a mix of both. So we're going to touch on both and really explore how they're intertwined and related. Some forms of grief can be very long-lasting and can require special treatment. But also, loneliness is an incredibly common part of grief and loss and isn't necessarily indicative of a medical condition at all. So let's dig deeper. First, we're going to define some terms. Let's
2: start with grief. Very simply, it's the reaction to a loss, to a meaningful loss. It's your body and mind, and kind of even larger than that, your spiritual response, your social response. It's The whole thing is grief, is what we call grief. This is Dr. Katherine
0: Scheer. She's an internist and psychiatrist who founded and directs the Center for Complicated Grief at Columbia University. She's been studying and treating people with grief for more than 30 years. And over that time, she's seen a lot of different people have very different experiences of grief. And she says all those experiences can be normal.
2: We talk about grief as the form love takes when someone we love dies. And if you think about your love relationships or everybody's love relationship, no two are are the same, right? There are some commonalities, but the commonalities are not so much in everyday life as they are in the what we call the big picture or 30,000 feet. So what we're dealing with is going to be a little bit different each time. Dr.
0: Shear often deals with patients who are experiencing what she calls prolonged grief. This generally means all-consuming grief that's experienced for more than a year, but there are more tests to determine what is and isn't prolonged grief.
2: It's a kind of form of grief that stays very strong and very pervasive for years and years after someone we love dies. And so grief doesn't ever totally go away or resolve, if you will, but it does evolve over time as we adapt to a world that's very changed after someone we love dies. It's not center stage anymore. We, we regain our Ability to connect with other people and to engage in our lives in ways that can give us really satisfaction and joy in our lives again. This is one of the things that
0: defines grief, actually, and makes it distinct from depression.
2: When we're depressed, we, we actually have an impairment in our ability to experience positive feelings and we really don't have that in grief. We, we, we sometimes feel survivor guilt, so we, we kind of don't want to experience positive um, feelings. But we actually can, and we usually do.
0: There are exercises, Dr. Shear suggests, for maintaining a connection to pleasure. Simple, rewarding things that can be done each day. But that can feel a lot easier said than done, especially because of the loneliness that often accompanies grief.
2: I will say that loneliness of all, the, of all the things that people feel, I think it's one of the, in a way, one of the last to kind of recede. It's one of the hardest to deal with. When Deanne originally
0: wrote to us, she said, I am a partner. She told us that her husband was her everything. I asked Dr. Shear, what happens when you lose someone so vital in your life? And Dr. Shear said that losing anyone is hard, of course, but it can be particularly difficult to lose someone so important to lose that person who you feel safe around, who makes you feel confident, who shares in your pleasures and your sadness. And so when you do
2: lose someone like this, we just feel the absence of that person and it feels like no one else can possibly be anything like that, even if we have other people that are sort of like that in our lives. But when this person goes, it's very threatening and um, it, and it, needless to say, feels terrible. And we feel like Again, like, no one else can fulfill that role, and we, we, can't, we can't get ourselves even to connect with other people. So how can someone move
0: forward after a loss this monumental? One way, Dr. Shear says, is to find somebody else, ideally another partner, but it doesn't have to be a new spouse. It could be a really good friend.
2: Someone who can listen, who wants to listen, who's really interested in your experience and can listen and and kind of validate what you're experiencing, can be there walking by your side, and maybe can help you a little bit with coping with some of the things you might be coping with. But we know that that's really
0: hard, especially during a pandemic. And it's not the only option. Something Dr. Scheer has seen help a lot of patients, actually, is discovering a new way to express themselves
2: We've run into people with complicated grief who've had, you know, a longstanding interest in in playing the piano and they never, for one reason or another, they never learned. And so can you learn to play the piano? Can you learn to paint if that's what it is? I mean, you don't invent something for yourself, but you look into yourself in, in, as best you can and, you know, and think about what you really, what would be really interesting to you or what you, what's something that you really truly value that maybe you're not doing right now, either one of those things. And I think that that also can help with loneliness because again, I think the main thing I think that is important is, is feeling like you're able to communicate out, right? Um, That makes you feel much less lonely when you can, when you can tell someone who wants to listen to you. Dr.
0: Shear told us repeatedly, in order to start healing after loss, an important step is to fortify your relationships and, yeah, maybe even start a new
2: relationship. I think that's the best way to to overcome loneliness because that's kind of what it's about. This is way easier said than done.
0: And relationships of all kinds can go haywire after a loss. So after the break... We're gonna to talk to somebody who has seen that darkest, loneliest part of grief before. And we're gonna get some advice on finding your way through. Welcome back to Checking In. So we wanted to talk to somebody who had a lot to say about relationships after a big loss, why it can be difficult to navigate them, and what moving on actually means in reality. I found that grief and loneliness are good friends.
3: They're good friends. They go together quite nicely. Add a nice little isolation cocktail, shake it up, and uh, you'll be pretty despondent. (laughs) (laughs) It'll—it's pretty bad.
0: Nora McInerney is a writer who turned her grief into a career that includes two memoirs, a podcast called Terrible Thanks for Asking, and so many meaningful conversations about death and loss that help people grieving from all kinds of things feel seen. Nora's husband Aaron died of brain cancer in 2014. She has since remarried and is raising a blended family with a new husband. One of the things that we were excited to talk to her about was how to maintain relationships with friends and family
1: while you're grieving. That's something that Deanne is having trouble with. Here she is again. Unless you find someone else who's lost their loved one, people really don't relate well to grief or loss, and they don't want to because it's frightening. One thing that discouraged us a lot was at the funeral when everybody came to our home afterward and, oh, we're going to contact us again and stay in touch with us, and not one. I think if people just understood a little bit more about loss And then a little bit more about how you should treat people on both sides regarding loss. Because I never expected anyone to come and do things for me, but I would have loved the company. Not every relationship will survive
3: a loss. Not every friendship survives grief. It just doesn't. And for a long time... I was extremely, extremely angry. You could, at any point in time, find somebody who, uh, you know, I burned a bridge with after after my husband died. But I would say they struck the first match. Am I still bitter? A little bit, but I do have some more compassion for them than I did uh, than I
0: did at first. Nora says that she realized that everyone else was making assumptions about her grief and the kind of support that she wanted and needed, based on what they would want if they were grieving. And this still happens actually with her close friends and family. It happened as recently as in November of 2020 on her husband's 6th death anniversary as she calls it. The day comes
3: I get you know I get messages from people who follow me on on Instagram. I get you know notes from my colleagues who know I'm not working that day. I don't get a single message from my siblings or my mom. I wait. Five o'clock rolls around, and any other year, and I have done this before. Different, different days, different, different things, different sort of days of meaning to your loss. you, You feel that feeling like, oh my, does nobody else? Am I the only person? Is this just over for everyone else? And it's such a betrayal. It's a different kind of wound. And I could feel myself going down that path. I could feel myself being like, wow. My siblings don't care about me. My mom doesn't care.
0: More importantly, they don't care about Aaron, and that kills me. It's totally understandable to feel this way and to make up stories about why these people are staying away. But Nora decided to confront them and to tell them what she needed. I fired up
3: the group chat. I sent a text message, and I said, I know you love me. Mm-hmm. I know you love me. It's Aaron's sixth anniversary. I didn't hear from any of you and it hurts me to not hear from you so here is what i need i need you right now to open up your calendar set a reminder not just for november 25th but also for um you know the week before i just want to hear from you and i want to hear that uh, you know that you're thinking of aaron that you're thinking of me i don't need just a reminder that he's dead i never forget that but i i want I just want that. Can I want to know that he matters to somebody who just isn't me, isn't his mom, isn't his sister. I want it from you because I, I, I know you love me, but this is how I need to be loved because people literally don't know. And I waited. I didn't have to wait long. My brothers called me, my sister called me, my mother sent me a text. My brothers told me, oh, I wouldn't want that. Mm-hmm. So I didn't do it. Like, we were raised in the same house with the same parents. In, 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 we share genetic material, and we experience grief that differently. Like, imagine that. Like, with that knowledge, you can extrapolate out to your friends, out to your family, out to everybody,
0: and realize no one knows what you need. So what if you're listening to this right now, and you are one of those friends? who was close to someone, who was grieving, and you felt like you didn't know how to help. Even if you really wanted to. Maybe you're afraid to say the wrong thing or afraid that whatever you attempt won't actually help or may even make things worse. If that sounds relatable, here's what Nora suggests. I drew a Venn diagram once. I I tell
3: people this all the time. It's basically, if you're not sure what to do, you draw a Venn diagram, and on the left side it says, what? can i do like what is within your ability to do you know what is in, what is in your wheelhouse to use a corporate term what can you do competently consistently and without ego meaning if no one saw you do it if no one wrote you a thank you card you'd be fine with it and what will you do also, competently, consistently, and humbly. Whatever that overlap is, you do that. And maybe it is that you just send a text. And maybe it is that you send a grocery gift card. Maybe it is you show up and you shovel their walk. Uh, like one, my neighbor swept the snow off the top of my house so that I wouldn't form an ice dam and have a, and have my roof leak. And 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 God bless him for that. <laughs> okay, like is would I get on someone else's roof? No, that was. That was his Venn diagram, what he
0: could do, what he would do. Something else that Nora experiences with other people that she would really like to put to rest is the use of the term move on, you know, in the way that people talk about her moving on or the expectation that people have that she will move on.
3: When you say the words move on, what a person who's grieving hears is stop that. Please, whatever you're doing, stop it. Stop. It's so, ugh, it's so much. Like, how long are you going to be said? And there's, you can feel that undercurrent in certain interactions with certain people, which is like, how long is this going to last? When do we get you back? When are you just going to be like a regular person? And the answer is TBD. I don't know. I don't consider myself a regular person
0: anymore. Nora realized early on that the concept of moving on didn't work for her. But she does talk about moving forward. Moving forward
3: to me means that you allow it to and you... Do your best to embrace what you have even as you miss what you had. Even as you, you know, for me, there is no current me without the, the past version of myself. There's no, there's no even version of my family without what I had with Aaron. There's not.
0: One of the ways she moves forward that she builds a full life that incorporates her grief and her loss, is by being in community with other people who really understand these feelings. At some point after Aaron's death, somebody suggested that I go to, like, some
3: sort of group or some sort of support group. And I was like, when would I do that? I have a freaking kid. Like, I have a a baby. I have a toddler. How on earth would I do that? And besides, I didn't even want to be a widow. Why would I want to hang out with widows? Like, I don't even want this. I, why would I want to associate with it in any way? And I ended up meeting my, my uh, co-founder, Mo Richardson, through our the women who own our, the coffee shop that we both went to, who forced us to meet each other, forced us to be friends. And within like a, the few hours that Mo and I spent together, I felt more safe and seen and comfortable and comforted than I had in, I did not know how long. I didn't know how long. And Mo and I lost our husbands in very different ways. And, and yet it was just this, the, the experience of recognition in, of yourself and another
0: person is so valuable and so meaningful. Mo and Nora kept meeting up and eventually they were thrown together with other widows and they formed an official group called the Hot Young Widows Club. It began as an in person meeting in Minneapolis and has since become an online space. We have people in there who's, you know,
3: who have been widowed for many years, for decades in some cases. We have people who have been widowed for hours. Sometimes people show up in the club. They are brand new. They haven't even had a funeral yet. But something in them knows, like, I will need to be able to talk to people who have been here.
0: Contrary to its name, the group includes people of all ages and genders. And you don't have to have been married to the person you lost. They just have to have been your person. One thing that's really great about the group is that it's a place where people can just talk about their people who they lost. They can talk about being lonely. And as we're hearing from Deanne too, that can be hard to do with people who aren't also grieving. But all that said, it shouldn't feel impossible to be supported by your loved ones whether they're grieving or not. Ultimately, it all comes back to learning to ask for what you need.
3: And the people who truly want to be there for us, the people who want to show up, who want to do their best, they cannot do that with bad information. They can't show up when they get the same response that you give the checkout person at the grocery store. You know, I'm I'm not advocating that we just all go out and spill our guts all over the street to every person we meet. But for the relationships that are important to you, the whole truth is important. It is vital. They need that. And I, I think that obviously all of our loneliness, all of our grief, all of our pain in different ways is bubbling up, is is sort of brought to the surface by COVID, by this extreme amount of isolation and and fear and uncertainty. And I think that it's, almost as good a time as any to pick up the phone, not FaceTime. No one wants to look at their own face while they're talking. It's so unnatural. No, 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 no. Go back to middle school, call a friend on the phone, lay on your bed, stare at the ceiling, play with your hair and talk to them. And if the only thing that you can say that is true is, I am lonely and I don't know what I
0: need, but I don't have it, you have a start. So there you have it. There aren't any easy answers to this question, but we hope that there was something useful for Deanne here and for anyone else who might be going through what she is. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate and leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information and episode references in the show notes. Follow Self on Instagram at Self Magazine. And I'm at Carolyn Kilstra. On our audio team, supervising producer is Odelia Rubin. Lead producer is Haley Fager. Executive producer is Shara Morris. Producer is Phoebe Unterman. Associate producers are Andrea Batanzos and Kate Mishkin. And sound engineer is Scott Somerville. On the self team, the editorial lead is Sarah Yalowitz. Special projects director is Amy Eisinger, Researchers are Amy Martirano-Winderall and Colleen de Belfond. The theme music is by Biscuit and Butter, courtesy of Blaze Unlimited, LLC special thanks to Julie Shen and Neon Hum Media. Thanks for listening. We're taking a break for the holidays. See you in a few weeks.